wait is over. Broadcasting live worldwide. Ladies and gentlemen, from the studios in the wrestling capital of the South, it's another terrific episode of The Binge Buster Show. Please welcome your host, Tony Binge. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Binge Buster Show. I know it has been a minute since we've had an episode, uh, but going through all these vacations and time off that Chris and I have went through, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to recharge your batteries and just hit the reset button. You know, our computers are like that all the time and our bodies are just like our computers. Sometimes we need a little reset recharge. Uh, but we're back this week fans, uh, first week of September, and we're going to be finishing out our, um, programs on greatest wrestling factions. And we're going to have a great, uh, a very interesting flashback uh, talking about Motley Crue's debut album, Too Fast for Love. We're going to kind of go in depth on that as well as uh, our podcast today is going to be on the greatest wrestling faction in the history of professional wrestling. I'm talking about none other than the Full Horseman, and that's coming up next here on the Binge Buster Show. But without any further ado, I want to bring on my partner, my co-host, my friend, my buddy I've missed talking to, I'm talking about Mr. Chris Plano. Chris, what is going on? Oh, terrific, Tony. Thank you for having me. I think it's been three weeks, if I'm not mistaken, since we last recorded. I recharged the battery, and uh, we're ready to go. I've, I, I've been looking forward to this, uh, to this podcast. When you told me about Too Fast for Love of Motley Crue, and then we're going to talk about probably... Uh, the, the greatest uh, uh, team dynasty in professional wrestling in the four horsemen. I, I got goosebumps and said, Let, let's do this. And I'm fired up and ready to go. And I can't believe it's the month of September. And uh, we, we are often running into the fall here. It seems like summer is going to be beyond us before we know it. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, but I'm a little upset at the same time because, uh, you know, uh, yesterday I was tuning in. I, I knew our governor was was going to make an announcement, and I was like, "Here it is. We're going to get rid of these masks." But instead, nope. We are still wearing the mask. We're in uh, phase two point five. I didn't even know that one that one existed, Chris. But uh, anyway, we're uh, phase two point five. He's opening up some of the gyms. So some of you gym rats out there, I know you're excited about that. Um, and uh and 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 i think he opened up some of the gatherings uh public gatherings i think he raised that number up to what 25 35 i can't remember the exact number yeah uh, maybe you know chris but uh yeah you know, I, I believe it's 25 indoors 50 outdoors and uh uh yes the gyms are open at reduced capacity and i think also aquariums and museums and playgrounds so things are slowly opening uh, but there's still some things shut down. It, it, it's definitely a, uh, uh, as he calls it, um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dimmer switch kind of approach of raising that light slowly. And uh, uh, they're being cautious here in North Carolina in, in, in approaching the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I mean it's you know, and 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 I, I know we joke about it, and, and but but I do know is you know it's all for uh, you know to keep us healthy, get get us back on the right track, get us over that curve. Um, but man, I tell you, Chris, uh, you know, like like we said, it's it's been about you know you know several Sundays uh, since you and I have got to sit down and talk and get and get to uh, uh, catch up, and I, I know we we catch up sometime through text messaging, uh, but Chris. You were on a vacation. Uh, tell 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 the listeners you know about where where you went to. Oh boy, let's see. Yeah, I got a, a few weeks ago. You know, we snuck down to to Myrtle Beach and uh, uh, for a few days and enjoyed it and you know had a good time. Caught great weather uh, the whole time and uh, checked out some things along you know Ocean Boulevard and stopped at a, a few hot spots for happy hours and, and things like that. And you know you talk COVID nineteen down there. It's kind of people. No, it's out there. It's, it's out there. I think some people are, uh, you know, following the rules and procedures. I think you have some people that are maybe ignorant to it or think it's a hoax and not real. And then you got some people who are on the fence with it. But, uh, you know, 
Um, you know, as Americans, hey, we we got to follow it. You got to you know, you got to wear your mask out in public. You got to what is it? Wash your hands for 20 seconds, or use hand sanitizer, and and have that physical or social distancing of at least six feet or more. I think if you follow those three rules, you're probably going to end up in, in in pretty decent shape and just being cautious and cognizant of of your surroundings. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, I I think I think if you wear your mask, you keep your hands washed, and like you say, you know, be aware of your surroundings. Um, I I do believe that you know it's it, you, you definitely will see a a tremendous change, um, in this uh, in the spread of of the uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, one of the other things I want to touch base on since our last time talking, school started back. Uh, the mm-hmm. kid, most of the kids are doing the, uh, the virtual I know my, I know my, uh, my, uh, two kids I've got, it's crazy fans. Uh, anybody knows me, I've got them spread out, man. I got one that just started kindergarten and I got one that just started college and they're both doing all their stuff virtual. Uh, my son is doing, uh, kindergarten virtual, uh, and I, I get to sit in sometimes and, and it's, and, and one thing about this virtual that I do like is the fact that I can, you know, a lot of times when your kids go to school, they're in school, you don't know anything that's going on. You don't really know what they're learning. They come home from school and you go, Hey, what'd you learn today? Well, I didn't, I don't remember. All right. So now with this, with this, um, virtual, uh, classroom, I get to sit in and, you know, on across the room and, and hear, you know, hear my son interact with his teacher and his, and his classmates and things like that. So, so that, that, you know, so that part's kind of neat. Uh, and of course my daughter who, uh, who incidentally just had a birthday a couple weeks ago and turned the big one nine, making her dad very old. Um, she started her first year of college. Chris, I, I'm so proud of her. She's, um, She's got, you know, quite a bit of money saved up in her bank account and she's, uh, got a you know, got her first car. Uh, I took him, took her out and got her a new iPhone, uh, for her birthday. And, uh, just, uh, you know, just, just seeing her and remember when she was five and how she is now at 19, uh, I'm very proud of the young lady that she's grew to be. And I'm excited to, to see what the future holds for her. Um, and so, you know, we'll go from there and, and she's follow she's following in her dad's footsteps because, you know, she's breaking hearts. You know, I, I, I think she breaks as, breaks as many hearts as I have bones. <laughs> oh Lord. All right. <laughs> there you go. But you gotta, you gotta keep an eye on, on, uh, on those guys as well. I'm sure. I, I don't know if I'd, uh, I don't know if I can handle, uh, being the parent of, of a, of a son, never, uh, or, or a daughter per se, but especially a daughter, I think I'd probably destroy myself. Yeah. Crazy, well, I I'll, I have to tell you a funny story and hopefully my daughter doesn't listen to the show, but you, you, you're going to love this. So every father that has a daughter has always had that, uh, that idea of, okay, when the boy comes over to pick her up on the date, you're going to be show up at the door <laughs> with a gun, shining up your gun and you know scaring him out and i always pictured my my first um experience with her boyfriend would would be kind of like will smith uh in uh bad boys too you know but um but 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 mine was more or less you know, me being a wrestler mine was more or less under this under this the same thing i cut so a couple weeks ago uh or I, for her birthday her boyfriend came over and they, they had cake and so me being you know the nice dad i'm like okay you know i'm gonna I'm let him hang out a little while you know at the house and uh so i'm getting things ready for bed and um my uh my, my daughter and her boyfriend are on the couch you know, or the sectional watching uh uh, Disney plus with my, with my five-year-old son. And so, uh, you know, me, me being me, I, I have a, I, I do have a, a security camera at my house. And so I, I, Chris, I came out of the, the kitchen and I saw, I seen the, the boy, you know, move his hand really quickly. You know, I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Let me, uh, you know, pull the camera up and, you know, just kind of see what's going on in there when I am not, in the room. And, um, so anyway, I ended up, uh, you know, turning the camera on and here's my son, you know, he's watching the Disney plus and he's singing along and, and this boy is like trying to put that smooth move on my daughter. And so I, I shoot her a text message cause you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to call him out. You know, I just text her and as I said, tell your boyfriend if he likes his fingers to keep them to himself and uh you know keep his hands to himself or whatever and um so i see her 
And she's like looking around at me at the table. I'm at the kitchen table. They're in the living room. And she looks over at me like, okay, dad, whatever. Right. And I don't know. I sit there for a second. And as a father, you, you just, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm going to stop this before I ever get started. So I just walk in there and I call the boy by his name. And I said, um, I said, uh, listen, if I ever see you try to put your hand on my daughter like that again, and and Chris, I say it just like this. I'm I'm cutting a promo, uh, but it, but it, yeah. but 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 I'm not screaming. I'm very I'm very subtle, which probably which definitely scared the boy more. I I say to him, I said, if you ever put your hand on my daughter, um, I will make you regret the day you were born. Oh and, boy! And he just stares at me and he smiles, and because he's thinking I'm joking. By now, by this point, he pissed me off, right? So I'm like, uh, you think I'm laughing? I said, do I? And then I, I started cutting a wrestling promo. <laughs> I'm screaming uh, like Roddy Piper. Uh, do I look like I'm laughing to you? Do, do, do I look like I'm smiling? Am I joking? No, I'm not joking. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take you home right now, I said. So I take my, I tell my five-year-old, you know, time to go to bed now. And while I'm putting my son in bed, I hear this like crash downstairs. I run downstairs, Chris, and here's my daughter, right? She's looking at the front door like a magician, just, just, um, just done a trick. And she's trying to figure out how the trick was, was performed. The boy's gone, Chris. I'm like, where, where did he go? She's like, dad, he ran out the door cause you scared him. And I was like, what? And I looked down, Chris. He, The boy left his shoes in my living room. <laughs> oh, God. Can you believe it? <laughs> he left his shoes. Oh, my God. <laughs> he left his shoes. So I'm like, okay. So I told my daughter, I said, come on, we'll get in the car. We'll go look for him. So we drive up the neighborhood. We can't find him. So I'm like, okay, well, I probably should call his parents. So I call his dad, and I'm good friends with his dad. Oh, Lord. I call his dad and tell his dad what happened. His dad's like, okay, here's the thing. Now, they live about 15 miles from me, 10 miles, whatever. And his dad says, well, here's – he left his shoes. I'm like, yeah, he left his shoes. He's like, he's like, well, here's the thing. If he walks in the door, if he walks in the door, then that, then, then that right there is his punishment because he walked 10 miles barefoot. I have to commend him for that. He goes, but if you find him hiding in the bushes, please, you know, put put him in one of your wrestling holds until I get there. I'm like, okay. Oh, geez. So my wife is like, are you not going looking for him? I'm like, no, his dad told me not to. I mean, and I went, drove down the neighborhood. I didn't see him. So my wife gets in the car and she goes and looks for him and she doesn't find him. And then by that time, his parents pull up and they find him. Chris, guess where at? Uh, in the bu- store down the road, I nope. <laughs> in the bushes in front of my house. <laughs> he didn't go far. Oh, he didn't go very far. He didn't go very far. But uh, it was. Oh, a, you know, it was a funny story. Yeah, my daughter knew I told the story. She'd be mortified and embarrassed, but I just had to share it because I thought it was hilarious. Well, that's a I'm sure. It's a classic story. I'm, yeah. I'm sure some parents can relate <laughs> to it. Um, I, I think for myself, I'd probably go crazy. I think oh, no more dude, than anything else. Some days, you know. Uh, I have to uh, think back to how it was when I was that age and go, okay, come a little slack, Dad. You know, it ain't that it ain't it ain't that drastic. But you know, as as a father, you always are going to be a whole lot more, um, whole lot more. You know, I don't know the word strict, but observant of of your daughter compared if you have a son. You know, a lot of a lot a lot of dads are like they got a son, like yeah, that's my boy. But when you have a daughter, it's right. completely different. It's like, don't you touch my daughter? You know, it's it's, right. it's kind of a double standard there. So I try to be, I, I try to stay fair, and, I, and, I, and 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 my daughter is a good kid, so I don't really have to worry too much. But uh, but anyway, I thought that was a funny story, and I <laughs> I had to share it. It was hilarious. But uh, but right now, fans, we are going to get to uh, one of our great parts of this podcast, and that is the flashback coming up right after this. This week's classic flashback. All right, fans, welcome back to the Binge Buster Show as our flashback this week is on Motley Crue's debut album, Too Fast for Love. The first edition was they they made 900 copies was released on November the 10th, 1981 on the band's original label, Leather Records. Uh, Once they signed with Elektra Records, they re-released the album uh, with a slightly different track listing uh, and slightly different artwork. 
Um, but the album has become the standard version from which all later reissues derive from. The re-recorded album also removed the song Stick to Your Guns, though it is featured on a bonus track version of the album. The original mix of the album remained unreleased on CD until 2002. Chris, what are your thoughts on Too Fast for Love? I mean, this was, you know, this was the, this was Motley Crue. This was their coming out album. This is uh, uh, an album that I'm not going to say put Motley Crue on the map per se, but it, it definitely raised some eyebrows in the early '80s of what was the the groundwork of what was to come of this band. Um, what I love about this album is for the band, there are still there's two to three songs on in that album that are continually played live in, in, in concert uh, as well. They're, they're a band that didn't forget where they came from. Several songs on the album are personal favorites, favorites of mine and really brought Motley Crue to, to the front stage and, and really out of the, you know, out of the, you know, the small club business and, and into the mainstream rock and roll. Yeah, and and one one of the cool things is, is like now you go even though the album was like re, was like recorded in 1981, um, but if you go back and listen to a lot of the tracks on there, they all still sound you know like like songs of today. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, you know, it's just it's it's a great album. Um, it really shows, you know, really. I think when they put that album together, it was a little bit of, uh, again about where they were also personally in their in their in their lives and what they, and how they were living and 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 what they were what they were doing. But also, you saw some great art, artistic, you know, a lot of Nick Mars in that album with with the electric guitar. You know, you heard a lot. You know, young Vince Neil on the microphone. It was it was a time where, uh, you know, they were actually maybe even a a, a few years ahead. Of, of other bands before they went hit mainstream into the mid eighties. This is actually even a little, even maybe prior to MTV, you know, and then really getting that MTV exposure once, you know, that came on the air. Yeah. And one of the cool things, if you go back, um, and, and focus on this, this particular year of Motley Crue, they were a lot like, you know, independent pro wrestlers of, of today. Uh, they were, they were self promoted. Um, you know, they, they would, um, you know, every day they'd go out and, 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 take and put posters on, on all the businesses and on the telephone poles, just like, uh, you know, independent wrestling promoters do now. Uh, well, maybe not so much now because now they, they, they do most of their advertising on Facebook, but, but back in the day when, when there wasn't Facebook, um, you know, Chris, I, I know you done it. I done it. Uh, you know, you could get a few guys together and you get your posters and you go around to all these gas stations and convenience stores, grocery stores, any, any place that lets you hang a poster and you would hang a poster, you know, letting everybody know, you know, where, where your next event's going to be. And that's kind of the way Motley Crue started out. And, before the release of this album, they uh, they they took all the money they had together, combined it, and went and recorded uh, two uh, demos. Uh, the the songs being "Stick to Your Guns" and "Toast of the Town," and put them on little little forty fives. And instead of selling them, when they would go to shows, they would Vince would throw them out to the to the to the to the fans. And that's kind of how they they got started. And then they got enough money together uh, to to go out and record. Um, their debut album under their own record label, Leather Records, and uh, that album was recorded um, on October to, uh, on in October 1981 um, at Hit City West in Los Angeles, California. Uh, the 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 original album uh, lasted 38 minutes 49 seconds, and then of course when Electra, uh, once Motley Crue signed with Electra, uh, Electra re-released the album because it done so well. Uh, just, just by Motley Crue having their own, you know, their own, um, record label, uh, the albums, you know, the first edition sold 900 copies. Now imagine that a band that nobody knows except for the people there in LA, but they sold 900 copies of this album on their own, not, not with some record company, you know? So I, so I think that that says a lot about what, how big Motley Crue was going to end up being. Um, but of course, like I said, when, once, uh, they, signed with Electra, Electra Records re-released the album. 
Um, and uh, of course, when they when they released it, they uh, done a couple little uh, changes to the to the album cover, and then they they actually took out uh, the the song "Stick to Your Guns," and that song was never released again until in two thousand and two. Uh, whenever Motley Crue re-released all their albums, they they added some of those songs back to the um, to to the re-released album. Now, one of the things that I think is pretty inter- interesting about this, uh, the album only reached number seventy-seven on the Billboard two hundred album chart in the United States. It would ultimately reach platinum status, which which is which is phenomenal. It, it is. It is. I mean, they they really, you know. When I look at this album, I mean, I, you know, when I look, see like Livewire, um, you know, Too Fast for Love, and I love Piece of Your Action. Oh, yeah, <laughs> man, love, that is, that is I, my song, too. That song, and they still play it in concert, um, you know, as well, uh, you know, a tribute to, to the first album. But for an album like this to make it to that level, I, 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 you know, I, I was researching 1981 albums, and, and Tony... Motley Crue put out this album, and 81 had some huge album releases. Oh, yeah, um, for uh, sure. Journey Would Escape. Um, you had Jay Giles' band with Freeze Frame. You had uh, uh, The Police with Ghost in the Machine, and then The Rolling Stones with Tattoo You. Those were huge albums. And, and, here, I mean, and going up against you know, iconic rock bands at that time um, you know, was like they were taking a risk. Oh, big you know, time, trying yeah. to put this album out it, it, with 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 all this other competition, you know, in the early uh, in the early '80s, and I'm probably missing you know a band or two that released uh, you know that year as well. But I mean, those were four big ones I just highlighted, and you got some stiff competition. You were trying to get airwave time at that time as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was tremendous uh, for, for, for the time frame uh, of this album. And, uh, another cool thing about this album in 2017, uh, it was ranked number 22 on Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest metal albums of all time. Um, that right there is saying a lot for an, uh, for a band who pretty much put this album out on their own. Uh, but for this album to, you know, to, 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 to still be, you know, relevant, today because like you say chris you, you go to a motley crew show you're going to hear them play live wire you're going to hear them play piece of your action you're going to hear them play on with the show and, and of course too fast for love and i'll right. never i'll never forget chris you know i always i always loved the song on with the show i just thought that was a really cool song it started out you know slow and then as it went on it, it kicked in and i never you know i saw motley crew play a lot of times but i never heard them play that song until uh, I believe it was in 2002, 2003, um, when, whenever the Red, White, and Crew tour was, I went to that, right. and that was the first time I heard them play on with the show, and I was so excited. I was like, yes. And then on the final tour, uh, they played it in Greensboro, but then whenever I went to see them in L.A., by that time they had uh, taken that song out. And I was kind of blown away because I'm thinking to myself, okay, when when they done the final show in L.A., I would have thought for sure that they would have played a whole lot a whole lot more songs from Too Fast for Love. <laughs> seeing that's 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 their hometown, that's how they got started. Right. Uh, but they pretty much uh, stayed to um, you know the, the the set list that they had played the whole the, the, you know through the whole tour, except that they did take out on with the show. Yeah, I um, yeah, I know Motley Crue. That was one of the things uh, I, I think they were saying going out prior to the final tour. If I could, I'm not sure who quoted it. it was probably Nikki Six. I believe he said, "You're going to see the same show. No one's going to get. We're not going to go to one particular city and all of a sudden play four or five more songs. Yeah. Versus another city, you're going to get the same show every night. Everyone's going to get the same experience. And they kind of stayed true homage to that uh, each and every city they went to and i think they wanted every fan to get the experience no matter where they were you know on the leg or or, or throughout those those couple legs of the final tour yeah i totally agree with you um but but definitely too fast for love was was a great album um i enjoyed it i play it i still play it. i mean it's, it's in my playlist i play it a lot um it's what it's, you know one of my favorite motley crew albums 
Yeah, it, it's a great album. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it, it laid the groundwork of what was to come for the band. Um, you know, and, and, and as a band, you know, they, they really, when they put their set list together, I, they probably pull, you know, songs from almost every album that they've made, but they go back to the original album where they came from. And obviously these songs have stuck with them over the decades and, you know, and, and, and they enjoy playing them on stage and the fans enjoy hearing them. So it, it works, you know, um, you, you know, obviously there are some songs on there. I've never heard them play live or they haven't played live in a very long time, but you know, they're pulling the hits out and they're playing the songs that they want to hear. But, but it kind of blew me away when I just saw all of the other big albums that were released that year on some of those other bands that I noted, um, you know, like the police and the Rolling Stones and, um, you know, and journey. I mean, those were gigantic albums for them and wow, wow to really throw yourself out there, you know, back then and, and, and try to get a piece of that market. They, they, they did it and they kind of did it in their own way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, but like I said, it was a great album. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, and even like a lot of bands have, have re-recorded or have covered a lot of songs off of too fast for love. I know St- uh, Chris Jericho's band Fozzie, uh, they uh, done a, a re-endition of Live Wire. It sounded really good, um, and uh, you know, and and, and there, there, there's been numerous bands that have done that. But I think Fozzie kind of stands out to me. Uh, they uh, done a cover of Live Wire, and, and and it stayed pretty much true to the um, to you know to to the original recording, which which I I've th- like I said thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but if if I could pick the best song off of uh, that album man it's such a toss-up but i i think i'm going with the uh, with the uh, too fast for love you're gonna go with too fast for love okay. yeah that's that's mine I mean, that, great, great song when i think of too fast for love i i kind of parallel that song with 10 seconds to love when they oh, uh, yeah for sure <laughs> when, yep when they when when they play it because it's got four words in it almost the same amount of syllables uh Two, Almost the same hey, of Chris, two songs with the same meaning, baby. <laughs> Pretty much, you know. Um, you know, I, I like them all. You know, I, you know, yeah, I, I do like Too Fast for Love. Um, you know, I, I think in that song you get to hear a lot of Vince Neil. Live Wire. When I think of Live Wire, you got to think of Mick Mars. I mean, he's got the guitar; it's blaring. You know, he's doing his his thing on it. Um, but you know, I, you know, to me, I, I love Piece of Your Action. Um, I, yeah. I really do. Um, I, I really think that particular song, you really get to see, you get, really get to hear, you know, all four of the guys on stage. Not that you don't hear them every song you do, but it seems when you hear a piece of your action, you're really, really feeling all four of them. I think that's what kind of draws me to that song and, and the way it sounds. And, it, you know, it just has that, that, that lineage to it that just, that just draws my attention. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100 percent on that, Chris. I mean that, that 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 song, and also on "Too Fast for Love" at the end of it, um, it, it's, it's almost like all three, um, you know, guys in the band uh, that play instruments. I'm talking about Nikki, Tommy, and Mick. They all three have like a you know a couple second solo as a song's ending. You hear a bass line from Nikki, a drum part from Tommy and a guitar part from Mick, and then they all finish it out, which I, which I think is, is kind of a cool concept there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely. I mean, it, it brings back great memories. And uh, uh, I, I will say this, if, if we get to uh, see them on the stadium tour in, in, in 2021, with my fingers crossed here next June, that they're going to hit the road, all the bands, and uh, including Motley Crue, I think we'll hear two or three of those songs off of this album in that set list. I would guarantee two. I would say three will probably be the, the sweet spot for this album and, and, and well-deserved to be in the set list. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm excited about it. All right, fans, we'll stay tuned as we're coming back in just a second. Uh, I've got a little little package I put together on the Four Horsemen as we are finishing up our series on Greatest Factions and we Definitely got to put in the Four Horsemen. They are, without a doubt, the best faction in the history of professional wrestling. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to take a uh, quick little break about the Binge Buster Show. And when we come back, we are going to be talking 
Um, Four Horsemen and all that coming up next here on the Binge Buster Show. A day in the life of the horseman. Well, I tell you, you would think this was embellishment. Telling you it was not. In those days, we were drawing money. We were making money. The company was making money. Jim Crockett had two private planes. We all bought new Mercedes. We bought five at one time at the Mercedes dealership there in Charlotte. Pull our Mercedes up to the uh, private aviation. Get out. Pull up to the steps of a private 10-seat jet. We'd fly to a Baltimore, Philadelphia, Richmond, Norfolk, wherever it was. Uh, plane had landed, there'd be a limousine sitting there. Jump in the limousine, go to the Marriott Hotel, check in, go to the arena, kick some major league ass, jump right back in a limousine, hit the town, whatever it was, whatever the evening called for, and uh, we live like Bob Hope. I don't know how life could have been any grander. I got a real big house on the big side of town in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you know why I let Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard come over to my house and work out in my gym and swim in my pool and dive off my five-meter board? Huh? You know why? Because they are champions. You gotta be a champion 24 hours a day, not just inside that squared circle. So you can get a little picture here. Arn, you're really living the life, baby. And that's what it was, it was an ideology. Check that watch out, baby, check that little timepiece. We'd always wear sport coats and not always ties and stuff, but sport coats and, and sunglasses and tried to be uh, very GQ and, and all that kind of stuff. We felt like we earned it. We worked harder than everybody else. We put in more time than everybody else. We were in a position to carry the company. We did carry the company and uh, we reaped the rewards. Flair would get on television, Rolex time this and that, and so I had to go get me a different gold watch with diamond face so I could, you know, try to upstage, and then he'd get a bigger watch, and I'd get a bigger car, and he'd get a bigger car, then I got two cars, then he'd get three cars, and, and <laughs> you know, we were firm subscribers to uh, he who dies with the most wins. Woo, let, me, let me see that Rolex, Slick Rick. Where's the limousine, Nate? When you are a star, you expect to be treated like a star, and, and you can be a little bit... I'll stop there. You see, I can't help it that I'm a star. We talked about being the best. We talked about the gold, the glory, the girls, the money, what lifestyle that you could get. I'm surfing in Hawaii. I'm down at Myrtle Beach laying in the sun. I'm driving around in one of my two Corvettes, or I'm speeding across the intercoastal in my Donzi 29 going, We actually preached, in some fashion, a way to live. It was a doctrine. Of, of sorts. We were taking that private plane and say for a four-day run, we'd be on the West Coast. Got him. We'd park that private jet in Las Vegas and operate out of Vegas for four days. We'd go to the arena and say Oakland. We'd wrestle. We'd wrestle 30 minutes. Jump on that plane back to Vegas. Drink half the night. Get up it with four hours sleep. Go to the gym. Go lay out in the sun all day. Back on the plane. Back to L.A. Wrestle 30 minutes. Back to Vegas. Here you go again. Gambling all night long. It was just one of those roller coaster rides. If I wasn't 25 years old, it killed me. The thing that made the horseman was that what we talked about on television, we did. We were just back from Las Vegas, you know, we had the big uh, vacation right there. When we went to Virginia Beach and, and went out to the nightclub, I mean, we went rocking and rolling. I mean, it you knew the horsemen were in town. When we went to Chicago, it was, and we got on television, talked about being at the Snuggery, which I don't think the Snuggery's even there anymore on Division Street, but in the mid-80s, it was there, and when the limousine pulled up, we walked in, we did not pay for a drink. Nothing, walked out of there. It was the horsemen ruled, and they had a wait in line to get into place, and I mean, it was exciting. The best part of it was is we really were a legitimate, 
team. It was four guys that really loved being together. You're the richest and the best. And you talked about it. And see, that is why the four horsemen thing stuck. The Four Horsemen was the most successful wrestling stable in pro wrestling history. The Four Horsemen was formed in 1985 with Ric Flair, Ole, and Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard with J.J. Dillon as their manager. They feuded with Dusty Rhodes, Magnum T.A., Barry Wyndham, The Rockwell Express, Nikita Koloff, The Road Warriors, Ronnie Garvin, and tons more of the NWA's top stars. Ric Flair was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion during this time period, and they usually had most of all the titles in the NWA, and they often bragged about their success in and out of the ring. The Four Horsemen will always be the number one wrestling stable in pro wrestling history. Chris, what are your thoughts on the Four Horsemen? Wow, Tony, where where do you start? I mean, uh, what a great intro. Um, that intro, those interviews, they lived the life when we talk about the original Four Horsemen. We'll, we'll have some time to talk about that. But what do I think? Growing up as a kid, um, you know, in the mid-'80s, the late-'80s, the only reason up in Connecticut I turned on WTBS at 6.05 every Saturday night religiously because I knew the four horsemen in some way, shape, or form, coming out individually, coming out all four together, had something to say each and every Saturday night. That's why I turned the dial. Yes, were there other great wrestlers on there like Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA and the Rock and Roll Express and Nikita Koloff? Absolutely, and the list goes on and on. But that's why I turned it on because... I wanted to be like those guys. I knew Ric Flair was going to be in a suit and tie, and I knew they were going to be dressed to the hill, and I knew they were going to say everything that the fans didn't want to hear, but in a way they did want to hear because especially the ladies, that's what got them going, and they knew exactly what to say and how to hit your emotional buttons without a doubt. Yeah, and you know, Chris, one of the the most uh, important things that I think all the fans out there need to understand is a lot of wrestling groups that have been put together or tag teams that have been put together, they were put together in a booking office. In other words, you had a promoter and a booker and a team of writers saying, okay, Tony has, has got this really cool image. And Chris has got a really cool image, and if we put them together, man, they're gonna be they're, they're gonna be something else. But with the Horsemen, no Booker put that together. That was just four guys, and 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 actually, the way the Horsemen got together was one night they were going to do a little six man deal, and they had just a few minutes of television to promote that match, so they brought them in. They're all in there in, in, in the TBS studio, uh, and each each of them were talking about a different match that they were in. But just so happened they had to get all that in there on that on that TV program. So so at that time, Ole and Arn were the national tag team champions. I think Tully was probably the television champion, and of course Ric Flair was the world champion. And each one of them had a different match that night in a in a town. But but Dusty wanted to put them on television, and for those last you know two minutes of TV, close the show out with them you know talking about their match. Well, it was during that time that Arn uh, made the basically Arn put them together and made a team because uh, at that point in time he said uh, you know he was trying to trying to close out that interview with all those guys, and he said uh, the only time this much havoc has been wrecked, I'm sorry wreaked. By this few of number of people, you you'll have to go back to the Bible days of the full horsemen of the of the apocalypse, and the comparison, uh, and the name stuck because immediately the very next week, people are showing up in suits and ties, holding up four fingers, saying full horsemen, and and I heard Tony Giovanni say one time that after that was after Arn said that, and they turned the cameras off, he walked over to Arn and said. 
man, you just you you just you you just hit on something. You just named you guys. And Arn's like, what are you talking about? He's like, man, this four horseman thing is, is sticking. And then later on, uh, you know, a few weeks later, they're in the Greensboro Coliseum, and Jay, uh, Jim Crockett comes up to Tully Blanchard and says, man, this horseman thing's really getting over, isn't it? And Tully, back then, he said he was really cocky. He looked at, at, at Jim Crockett and said, like, you think? And, man, from that moment on, uh, the horseman blew up. Absolutely. I mean, the, the horseman, uh, for that period of professional wrestling and the time with the NWA in the South, in the Mid-Atlantic, out in the, North, in the Midwest and West, it worked for television. They were the guys everyone loved to hate. And they were going after all the top talent in the NWA. They had all the gold. And in a way, they were the hunted. Yeah. But it always seemed that the horsemen for the TV tapings always seemed to have that little bit more to leave everyone fired up because that's what sold the ticket sales when they had to take on the likes of Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff and the Rock and Roll Express and um, the Road Warriors and, and Magnum and Wahoo. The list goes on and on and on and on. And that's because you knew every time the NWA went to town, the horsemen or a horseman in one way, shape, or form was always in the main event or semi-main events of, of the card. They were not mid-carders by, by any chance. They were always up in the top third of the cards. That they were the draw with, 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 the, with the major um, uh, you know, fan favorites. Yeah, and one of the things uh, also about the horsemen that worked so well is they if, if they went on television and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, if it's say Ric Flair, for instance, if he's, if he comes on television and says, you know, I'm, I'm taking my Donzi across the intercoastal highway, you can bet your every dollar you got in your bank account that Ric Flair has got one of them boats. Or if Ric Flair says he lives in the biggest house on the big side of town in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can believe it. And, and that was the thing about the horsemen. It wasn't a gimmick. It was their real life, but, but their life was the gimmick, you know? Um, you know, a, a lot of guys would, you know, say they're, well, I'm, I'm from Chicago and I do this, but, but the horsemen, they lived in Charlotte. They all lived, you know, on the same street, pretty much. They, they, they traveled together. They ate together. They partied together. They were a legit group. And if they went on television and said, you know, Dusty, we're going to break your leg. Dusty guy's leg broke. And, and, and I think one of the coolest segments ever uh, was the time that they JJ hired a cameraman and and they were in the two Cadillacs and they chased Dusty mm-hmm. down down and ca- got him in a parking lot just like a real gang would have done. Now, the average fan or average person would go, wait a minute, they just committed a crime. They beat this guy up in the parking lot and broke his arm, you know? But, assault and battery. <laughs> yeah, assault and battery and everything else. But uh but man, the people bought into that, you know? And uh and it didn't matter who the horseman had a program with, they drew money everywhere they went. Absolutely, because you know, back then we're we're, we're going, you know, at a time in wrestling where you had to tune in one, once a week on television or you went to that. You went to wrestling when they came to your town because you knew, okay, this could be the night Flair loses the title. This could be the night, you know, the Horsemen lose the tag team titles, the TV title, whatever title they were holding, the U.S. title. I mean, it it could happen in my hometown, and that was the lure. That was the lure of it. You know, every time they came to town, and they were a draw. I mean, people wanted to to see them, and they did live that life. You know, Ric Flair probably lived it to the highest of any of the horsemen, that, that lifestyle, um, and, and probably still does a little bit too till today. You know, Ole was fading out in his career. Obviously, he was the oldest of the four horsemen or the original four horsemen, but, you know, Tully and Arn, they were right in the thick of it too, but that was part of the allure. And from a male perspective, a macho perspective, yeah, I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be wearing the Rolex watches and the Armani suits and, and, you know, getting my hair done and what top floor Marriott hotel, we're jet flying, limousine driving. I mean, that's the lifestyle you want to live. And, and Ric Flair lived the sharp dressed man role as ZZ Top plays the song. Right. I mean, oh, yeah. He lived 
the role. Yeah. And, and, you know. and every week, he was always out in a different suit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he lived the, the lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's, that's what put the horseman apart from everybody else that came along after that. Uh, now, you, you, you kind of touched on, on Ole uh, leaving the horseman. Uh, Ole was actually kicked out of the horseman. Uh, they replaced him with uh, a newcomer by the name of Lex Luger. Uh, Luger had been in the business just a couple of years, but he had a million-dollar body, a million-dollar looks, and so they, they thought he would fit perfect in the horseman. But later on, um, after Luger joined – or I'm sorry, Luger left the horseman, uh, they teamed him up with Barry Windham. And at the very first Clash of the Champions uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, on my birthday of all days, 1988 um, – Barry Windham and Lex Luger would defeat the undefeated horseman, Tully and Iron, to become the NWA World Tag Team Champions. Uh, but uh, incidentally, they would only hold those belts just a couple of weeks. Uh, and J.J. would get in the in the ear of Barry Windham. And Barry would turn on Luger and help Ole, I'm sorry, Arn and Tully uh, helped them win back the World Tag Team Championships. Um, but at that point in time, once Barry became a horseman, I remember back in those days when Barry first joined the horseman, I was like, wait a minute, this ain't right. Because everybody in the horseman are classy guys. You know, they, they wear the fancy suits. and they. But Barry's a, Barry's a West Texas country cowboy. How in the world is he going to fit in the horseman? But he did. It didn't take very long. He would come out there, no. and man, he he had. I mean, he had the look anyway. And and what I didn't know then that I do know now was Barry was just as big a partier as Ric Flair. And, and a lot of times, I heard Ric Flair say a couple of times that that Barry drank him under the table. So Barry was a perfect <laughs> fit into the Horseman. But not only that, Barry was a great worker. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know. Barry was 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 Dusty Rhodes' baby. I mean, you know, into the NWA, you know, it fit. And 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 what made it fit with Barry was he can work in the ring as well. Yeah, and that's what made it fit. He can play the role. He was he was a, a great baby face. Maybe even a better heel. Probably even enjoyed being a heel in the ring yeah. even more uh, than that. But it fit with the horseman. He had the long blonde hair to an extent, not as long as Flair, but he had the look, he had the physique, and he can work. And his personality, along with his skill set in the ring, is what, what made it work. And it was just a great addition, you know, to the horseman. And I actually like the horse. You know, you know, the original four are the original four, and no one's going to take that away from anyone. But I have to say. With Barry as the fourth horseman, I, I think that was the best, you know, quartet of them uh, of any of the the combinations they had throughout the the, the legacy of the horsemen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and then, of course, uh, during this time was uh, th- this particular lineup of the horsemen has always been called the greatest faction uh, in the history of of the full horsemen. Uh, during this time, Ric Flair was the NWA World Champion. Barry Wyndham was the United States champion, and Ole, I keep saying Ole, Tully and Arn were the world tag team champions, and, of course, J.J. was the manager. So they pretty much dominated the National Wrestling Alliance. But now here comes the bad side. Here comes the downside. As as Motley Crue always says, all bad things must come to an end. <laughs> uh, during this, But, unfortunately, this was good things. Horseman was good. Uh, but in 1988, Jim Crockett Promotions would end up selling uh, to Ted Turner. Uh, and during this time is when a lot of guys started to leave. And unfortunately, Tully and Arn were the first ones to leave uh, the NWA and go up north. Um, and then Barry left as soon after, and so did Flair. But around 92, um, Flair came back. Arn came back and they decided to, hey, we got to put the horsemen back together. And they had Ole. Um, and because during that time uh, of Arn being gone, Ole being gone, Barry being gone, the only person in the NWA that would come to Ric Flair's aid was Sting. Uh, and during that time, uh, they were still, Flair was kind of like a baby face, but he would cheat a little bit. But 
he had that little feud there with Terry Funk and Gary Hart and Muda. And Sting, you know, being Flair's partner uh, was awesome. It was a good little deal. But the, but then the time came that hey, let's let's make let's, let's make Sting a horseman, which immediately didn't work. You know, Sting wasn't a horseman. Sting was a he was like Hulk Hogan. He was like he was a better star on his own. Um, and 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 Chris, you said it best. Uh, before we went on air, we were talking about this. Uh, what 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 was it? Flair said to Sting about being in the Horseman. Sting, you were never a Horseman. <laughs> I love it. Along that line, but I love close. it. I love it. And <laughs> and of course, Sting Sting was like the first uh the first member of of the next part we're going to get into uh, as we finish up this this show. But uh, we've talked about the best Horseman. But now we're going to touch on who were the worst members of the Horsemen. Mine, mine and Chris's idea of who was the worst members of the Horsemen. And even though Sting was a tremendous talent, tremendous, he just didn't work in the Horsemen. It just he did it. It didn't work. The people didn't buy it. And like I said, Sting was more. Uh, he was better on his own uh, because at that point he, you know, his character was blossoming. But it was a perfect. It was a perfect um, angle. To put Flair or put Sting in the Horseman, so Flair could turn on him, so that Sting would become the NWA World Champion, and I think that program uh, was tremendous. Now, getting into some of the worst members of the Horseman, um, one of my one of my first picks is pretty Paul Roma. Paul just didn't he to me he didn't look like Horseman material. How how do you take a guy that was a jobber in the WWF and put him in the most elite group in the NWA? Uh, it just doesn't work. Yeah, um, you, you know, I'm going to say this, Tony, and I, I, I you know, th- to be honest with you, I actually liked Paul Roma as a WWF wrestler. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. He had the look. He had the look. He had the, you know, he had he had the look. He even had a little push, I believe, at, at one point in the WWF. Yeah, and um, the young style. Well, but yeah, yeah, but you know, he was always a, you know, you know an undercard guy, but I always, for every reason, I always kept up with him and liked him. And then, yeah, the next thing you know, he's going for the four horse in the NWA, you know, at that time, uh, you know, the NWA at that time would have took probably anyone from the WWF of any talent level, just to say, we got someone from the WWF at that time, since Vince was already pulling people, uh, you know, out of the NWA. So that little war was going on. So, Albeit, we're going to give them. If we're going to take them, we're going to give them a push. <laughs> yeah, sort. for sure. Um, so you know, for Paul Roma, probably right place, right time. And you know, for him saying, "Hey, we'll bring you down here, make you part of the Four Horsemen." Who wouldn't turn that down? <laughs> I don't think, uh, no matter where you are in your career. So, um, but no, probably not one of the <laughs> by far the best horsemen. But again, this is at a time where they were trying to piecemeal. Uh, things together an experiment of what work and what may not work. And uh, they might've been looking for a Barry Windham miracle uh, in, in, in Paul Roma when yeah. they were making that decision. Yeah, for sure. Now the, the, my next choice, Chris, uh, who I feel didn't fit in the horseman was Sid vicious. Now Sid had a great body million dollar look, but he just mm-hmm. wasn't to me, wasn't a horseman guy. No, I mean, you know, you know, a guy like Sid Vicious probably doesn't even need the Four Horsemen. You, you know, he was just so big, so dominant. Um, you know, menacing in the ring. Okay, we're trying to mull him in, and because when you think about it, the Four Horsemen were never really big. The original four, not saying that they weren't big in the ring, they were big. But they weren't skyscrapers in the ring either. Let's let's, let's be realistic. Right. But as a combination of jumping on guys, it worked. Um, and Sid didn't have the best mic skills either uh, when it comes to the microphone. So that might not have helped. <laughs> yeah. Hey, when you, when you, when you, when you talk never. about that, Chris, it reminds me of this video I saw one time where he was in the WWF and uh, Jim Ross was going was interviewing him, and he and Sid thought it was being recorded, not live. <laughs> And Sid's like trying to cut the promo and he messes up and he goes, Oh, I, I got to do this again. And Jim Ross says, we're live, buddy. You get one take. Let's go. <laughs> I thought that was tremendously funny. Yeah. 
I, I, I mean, the, the horsemen, um, you, you know, they were, you know, from a size standpoint, I go with the original four horsemen, from a size standpoint, you know, they were muscular and average in the ring, but they weren't gigantic. I mean, and I think Sid, it just didn't, it just didn't work. Barry, yeah, Barry was taller. Don't get me wrong, but he was no Sid Vicious in the ring either when it came from a physique standpoint. Right, that's true. And, and then you know, Sid was just so—I don't know—it just seemed like he could have, you know, did his own his own thing. I it just it, in the end, it just didn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't. It was long just term. one of those things. It just it just wasn't there. Um, and then of course the final uh, my my final pick. Uh, as worst members of the Four Horsemen would have to be Steve Mongo McMichael. Now, Steve was a great guy. He was a, uh, a big football star. Uh, so, and he had money. So, so with that, that puts him in the Horsemen. But hor- but most of the Horsemen, the most successful Horsemen, were great workers, tremendous workers in the ring. Uh, to me, when they made Mongo a member of the Four Horsemen. I, I feel like it, it, it took away from some of the, the, uh, the uh, notoriety of, of the full horsemen because now they're, you know, they're, they're basically got, uh, you know, a rookie uh, is, is now a member of the horsemen, whereas all in the past, people that were horsemen members uh, were, you know, veterans of the ring. Yeah. Uh, it was almost at this point, you know, we're talking mid-90s here, it was almost it was uh, it was almost just kind of shoved down our throats and and kind of accepted he's a horseman and we're gonna go with this kind of thing versus it happening naturally. Uh, Mongo really green at this time as a as a wrestler uh, uh, on the main stage, um, you know. And at this point, you kind of wonder what's going through even Ric Flair's mind, saying, "Wow, we created this dynasty back in the mid '80s, and now look at where the hell it is." You know, ten, eleven, twelve years later. And from a skill standpoint, it's nowhere even close <laughs> right, <laughs> to sure. the, the original horsemen. From an experience standpoint, uh, the level of opponents they were taking on, I, I, I mean, it was just uh, we're, we're trying to find, it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. They're, they keep moving the Rubik's Cube around, and, and darn it, we're going to get the right combination here eventually. And I, it's almost like what they're trying to do and. And I think the NWA at this time was trying to experiment, and, and WCW was trying to experiment with uh, guys from the National Football League. Even Kevin Green, I believe, was involved at, at that time as well. He was a Carolina Panther back then here in Charlotte. And, uh, um, you know, they were just trying to find, I think, other ways also to draw audiences in, uh, uh, too. And it, you know, so there was some other backdrop to it as well. Yeah, for sure. Um I mean, it was definitely a uh, a a different time, different era. Um, now, going into the last incarnation of the Full Horseman came September 1998 on the September 14th edition of WCW Monday Nitro in Greenville, South Carolina, Horseman Country, as I might add. Um, they uh, held like a they they turned the lights down. JJ came out. They brought out Arn. Arn starts and in introducing the new members of the Horsemen, uh, them them being Steve McMichael, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and then Arn says, "Oh my!" He says, "My gosh!" He says, um, "Almost forgot the last Horseman, Ric Flair. Come on down here." And during that time is when Flair had been off TV for well over a year. Um, but the people still wanted to see Ric Flair. They wasn't ready for Flair to be gone, and Flair had went through that, um, you know, lawsuit with WCW, um, and he decided, you know, come back to work. And when he came back, he, I heard Ric Flair say several times that that was one of the biggest pops he ever got in 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 his career, uh, because a couple things. Number one, he was in Greenville, South Carolina. He was in the Horseman Country. But number two. How how can you deny the greatest wrestler of all time, Ric Flair? Can't <laughs> you can't? You just gotta let him. You gotta let him walk the aisle, and uh, and and the floor is his. Yep. I, you know, um, you know, and especially after the hiatus, you know, he had the disagreement with Bischoff. Um, you, you know, 
I, I don't know. It's just uh, the, the four horsemen will always be Ric Flair. I, I mean, he, the other ones were important too, but they all had the face of the horseman, but he, he, <laughs> you know, I, I think when you, when you think of Ric Flair, you think of the four horsemen and, you know, that it, it, it was just, it was just great. And, um, in Greenville is horseman country. Yes, it is. <laughs> Anywhere in the Carolinas is horseman country, no matter where you go, I think. But, uh, uh, and that was a hotbed down that way, that Greenville, Spartanburg, oh, man. Yes. Uh, Greenwood, South Carolina area. Yeah, Flair, Flair was huge down there. Uh, now, as, as we close out the podcast, you, you got to think about the legacy of the horseman. What is the legacy of the horseman? Uh, the original four horsemen, they were innovative uh, in developing and popularizing the concept of heel stables. Um, you know, without the horsemen, there would, there would never have been a NWO or a D generation X. Uh, and of course there, there, there's been a whole lot, you know, more stables over the years. But when you mention the word stable and you mention wrestling group, the first name that is going to come to anybody's tongue uh, it's definitely going to be the full horseman. Absolutely. I mean, they were at a time formed going up head to head with the world wrestling federation in the mid eighties. WWF was doing their thing up North and down here, the NWA, they had the four horsemen. Um, they had something that no other promotion had. And they took that concept to television to prey on people's emotions, to prey on the fans' emotions, and then brought it live to their house shows of what people were seeing off of television. And it worked. They all had the look. They all had the microphone skills. They knew what to say. And and they all could wrestle as well, all four of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, especially Ole Anderson and mm-hmm. Art. <laughs> you oh, know, man. But they all could. They, they, all, they all could work in the ring. They didn't, JJ was there as great support. Those guys, they didn't need valets. They had them every once in a while. They had a couple moving in and out. Um, but all they needed was the gold around their waist, and that's all they needed. And if they didn't have the gold around their waist, they were in the title match chasing the gold. Um, and, 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 and the biggest thing, I think, at the end of the day for the four horsemen, no matter what, was making sure at the very least, at any time, that the World Heavyweight Championship was in their stable. I yeah. think that was always the number one gold. And then, of course, anything else was just a bonus. And when they had all the gold in their stable, they had it all. They had the money. They had the girls. They had the titles. They had the look. We got it all. And <laughs> and everyone else is chasing them. And, and it worked. It was just, It was a simple concept. And they had the right talent at the right time to do it. Uh, right there in 1985. Yeah, I don't think anybody else could have fit in that in that mold um, as the horseman, other than you know Ole Arn, Tully, and Flair, because those those four guys they they really knew how to draw heat, but they were legit. Absolutely, absolutely, they were legit in the ring, and you knew when you were getting in the ring, it was going to be a war. Whether it was a singles match, tag, uh, war games, you know, you you name it, in a cage match, whatever kind of match, it was going to be a war, and they put butts in the seats, and that's what it took to put butts in the seats because everybody wants to see the bad guy go down, and you know that's really the mystique of of, of who they were and what they are, and they lived that not only in the ring, outside the ring. In everything they did, and they were very precise about it. I'm talking walking from the arena to wherever they were going, in, out, wherever, because back then the people ate, slept, and drank it, and they were they were living vicariously through them to, to some extent. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a, a, a great time. And, uh, man, the horsemen will always be the most elite group in professional wrestling history. Well, fans, I hope that you enjoyed this week's podcast as we broke down too fast for love and hopefully, um, hopefully, uh, taught you some things about the horsemen that maybe you didn't know. 
um, or if you, if you did know, it took you back down memory lane. Um, next week's podcast is going to be is going to be really good. I think Chris, uh, uh, stay into uh, our classic albums. I think next week uh, because this this week right here uh, marks the anniversary of Motley Crue's most famous and most um, uh, popular album in the history. Uh, Dr. Feelgood. So next week we're going to be breaking down Dr. Feelgood and uh, we're going to be uh, hopefully um, I, 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 I'm working on getting us another guest, a special guest on next week's show. So that's kind of up in the air. So right now uh, I don't know that about that yet, but uh, if not, we will definitely be uh, talking pro wrestling uh, and uh, all that good stuff uh, next week on the binge buster show. Chris, you have anything, any parting words before we go off the air today? Boy, Tony is back. It's great to get back in the groove. I, I know we took a, a few week hiatus. We'll start getting back in the groove here weekly now as we're into September and it's the fall. Boy, what, what, a, what a great podcast tonight. We talked too fast for love. You brought back some memories of, of my time seeing Motley Crue live plenty of times. And, and then the Four Horsemen, I, I, I mean, we could, we could talk all night about the Four Horsemen. But at the end of the day, they were great entertainers, not only in the ring, outside the ring. And, uh, and it was just a great time to be not only a rock and roll fan in the early to mid-80s, but also an absolute great time to be a wrestling fan in the mid eighties, uh, when wrestling truly, truly exploded onto the, onto the main stage. And, uh, um, looking forward to next week's podcast. And, uh, I know you'll have some twists and turns for me and, uh, and, uh, we'll be ready to go with it for sure. Well, fans, make sure you go, uh, check us out on our Facebook page, like our page and download our podcast on your favorite podcast platform for Chris Plano. I'm Tony binge. We will see you next week on the Binge Buster Show. Thank you for listening to the Binge Buster Show. Make sure you like us on Facebook and download us on your favorite podcast platform.